They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out. This is the word of the Lord. Let me remind you again how similar the Gospels are and how different the Gospels are. At Christmas time, I told you that with very expensive writing material in that first century, Luke has written 81 verses and the baby isn't born yet. Mark jumps right in. By verse 21, Jesus has already walked all the way from Galilee down to Judea to be baptized by his cousin John. He has begun to preach. He has called his first four disciples. The Sabbath has come and he's taken them into the synagogue at Capernaum. 21 verses. Capernaum is a well-preserved biblical site now belonging to the Roman Catholic Church. It was covered over for hundreds of years by the blowing winds and driven dust. You know that it sits right on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, which is not really a sea, but a freshwater lake. You know about the beautiful waters that bubble up in clear, clear springs just north of that lake, form the headwaters of the Jordan River, which then empty into this lake. It's about eight miles long. It's about four miles across at the widest point. Capernaum sits right where the twelve would, if this were the face of a clock. The Roman Catholics have unearthed a house they believe may well have been the house of Simon Peter. There's archaeological evidence to support that. They have found the ruins of an ancient synagogue. <clears throat> when we first saw Capernaum in 1983, hardly anything had been done there at the site of Capernaum. But every time we've been back, more and more has been done. The columns of the synagogue have now been raised again. You can see where the worshippers sat. They sat on the perimeter, all facing in, so that there could be discussion. A synagogue was a place of prayer, a place of reading the Holy Scriptures, and discussing what those Scriptures really do mean. Four things I've underlined. Number one, Friday, sundown, Saturday, the Sabbath. Jesus went to the synagogue. One of the other Gospels says, Jesus went to the synagogue, as was his custom. I've already told you that in the Gospel accounts, Joseph and Mary do everything an observant Jewish couple are supposed to do with the birth of a first child. Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day. He is presented to the priest at the temple when he's still just a baby. He is taken back to Jerusalem in Luke's Gospel when he's 12 years old. They are an observant Jewish family, and that includes worship, going to the synagogue, offering the prayers, hearing the Holy Scriptures, hearing discussion, perhaps participating in discussion of what that Holy Writ actually means. Remember old Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof? Tevye and his family live in a very poor little Russian village called a shtetl. He is a dairyman. He has one cow. He has five daughters. 
He has no sons, five daughters, all of whom must have a sufficient dowry for her to get married to a proper young man. So early in the morning as old Tevye makes his rounds delivering fresh milk, he sings, If I were a rich man. If I were a rich man, I wouldn't have to get up so early in the morning. I wouldn't have to milk that old cow. I wouldn't have to hitch up my pony to a cart. I wouldn't have to deliver milk door by door so that my five daughters could have a proper marriage. If I were a rich man, I would go to the synagogue every day, he sings. I would ask questions that would cross a rabbi's eyes until finally one day somebody would say to me, Reb Tevye? Reb short for rabbi. Finally someone would see me as a teacher. As a teacher. I want to be taught. I want to go to the synagogue every day and be taught. Well, at least once a week, huh? At least once a week. Once a week we come to be taught, to teach and to taught. Um, Mark says this is such an important part of Jesus' function. You know that Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four. It has only 16 chapters. In 16 chapters, Mark mentions in direct connection with Jesus either that he's teaching, that he is taught, or that he is called teacher. Teaching is very important. You go to the synagogue and then you teach and are taught. This is the number two part. The first five scrolls of the Bible we often call the law. But the Jews call it Torah. And Torah is not law. Torah literally means the instructions or the teaching. The instructions or the teaching. If you were to go to Temple Israel, our congregation, B'nai Amuna, every Friday night for one year, you would hear them read through all five of the first four, five scrolls. There are 39 in the Hebrew Scriptures, but the first five are definitely the most important. They read through the first five every year and start over again. The teachings, the instructions that are so important. Did you read this story written by Yosef Eliezri? Yosef is the son of a rabbi. He felt that God was calling him to be a rabbi like his father. He was in college learning to be a rabbi when he got sick. He was taken to a doctor. He was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of leukemia. He was 21 years old. The doctors did not think he would live more than a few months, but they would do the best they could to preserve this young life. They put him in the hospital, gave him the harshest kinds of chemicals to try to drive this leukemia from his blood. Uh, he went through that wretched nausea day after day and night after night, lost all of his hair when he was 21 years old. He said he could see his arms getting thinner and thinner, his legs thinner and thinner. His mother and father, of course, were regularly there to see him, to be with him. And they were always trying to, to remind him of something that was coming soon, something he could look forward to, something he could anticipate. And finally, at one point, his father said, Yosef, you will light the first candle on the menorah to welcome Hanukkah again. 
Remember what Hanukkah is about? It's not about Christmas. It falls in December, but it's not about Christmas at all. Hanukkah is about celebrating religious freedom. It came from an event 150 years before Jesus was born. Remember that Alexander the Great and his Greek armies had conquered much of the Mediterranean world. Alexander died at age 26, and his generals carved up his territories. The general that inherited what you and I know as Israel today was horrible. His son was worse, and his grandson was worse than that. It was finally 250 years into that horrible period when the worst of the worst had come to power, a fellow named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus decided that he would really put these Jews in their place by forcing his way into the Holy of Holies on the temple at the top of Mount Moriah and slaughtering on the altar a hog, the filthiest and ritually most unclean animal in Jewish theology. He did that. And a fellow named Judas Maccabees rallied his brothers and they started telling as many people as they could, as quickly as they could, that's enough. That's enough. They went into that desecrated Holy of Holies and found one little vial of oil that had been properly consecrated and decided that as long as this one remaining consecrated vial of oil burned in the eternal lamp, in the Holy of Holies, God would help them drive back their enemies. They wondered, how long would it burn? 12 hours, 24? It burned 24 hours, 48, 72, fourth day, fifth, sixth, seventh, eight days. Eight days it burned, and they drove the enemies from the Temple Mount and from their beloved Jerusalem. Hanukkah. Eight days of celebrating, lighting candle after candle. Yosef said, I didn't feel like lighting a candle, but I hoped and prayed that I could. Just a couple of days before, he said, in my hospital room, I heard a discussion outside the door. I recognized the voice of my Abba. Oh yes, today Jews still use this word. The word for affection, endearment, a child expresses for his or her father, daddy, papa. It's what Jesus used when he taught us how to pray, Abba, our Father who art in heaven. Yosef writes, it was definitely my father's voice outside that door in the hospital hallway, and I could hear someone I had to assume was somebody from the hospital saying, an open flame in a hospital? You have got to be kidding me. But my father is a persuasive man, Yosef said. And when the day came, an official was there to represent the fire department to keep the door closed so that no oxygen was coming down the hallway that might endanger others. In my little room, the menorah was brought in, and my father helped me to my feet. He said, Yosef, you say the prayer. You light the candle. I said, Abba, you are the rabbi. He smiled and said, then you should do what I say. He said, I knew this prayer. I knew it. Blessed art thou, 
Oh, I am who I am, our Elohim, King of the universe, who has performed your miracles in ages upon ages. I lit the candle. I know this prayer. I know this God. His blood type was asseminated, distributed, and Israeli, halfway around the world, matched perfectly, and a bone marrow sample was sent. He was transplanted, and Yosef is today a young rabbi, one who was taught, one who teaches. Our Jesus came from that long tradition of those who've been taught and those who now teach. Number three. Mark not only talks about the teaching function of Jesus, he talks about sickness. Um, you know that in the first century of this common era, we knew nothing of bacteria. We knew nothing of viruses. Uh, we knew sickness was not natural. Health was natural. And people of faith believed that God did not wish sickness upon anyone, but God wished health for everyone. The word salvation itself really has to do with wholeness, healthiness, if you would. That includes right relationship with God and right relationship with others, but a part of it is not being sick, being well. So Luke... Eleven times in his gospel describes illness as being caused by unclean spirits, demons, unclean spirits and demons. Um, in, Luke, in Mark's gospel, the disciples never quite get who Jesus is. Uh, they get close at times and then they fall back. They say the right words and then they deny them. Um, it's interesting that when the people in the synagogue don't really know who he is, and the disciples who've just been called don't yet know what he's about, the unclean spirits know who he is. And Jesus says to them, come out of him. And there's a big convulsing here, just dramatic, wild scream as the unclean spirits go, meaning this is a serious battle between the forces of evil and the forces of good. My family and I have lunch on Sunday after church, and as we're driving home, I turn on NPR and Garrison Keillor's on. Garrison Keillor's home base, St. Paul, Minnesota, um, he visits from other places. He was in Tulsa some months ago doing his radio show called The Prairie Home Companion. Uh, I've been listening to him for years. I love to hear his stories about Lake Wobegon in Minnesota. He pokes fun at the Lutherans. A lot of people assume he is a Lutheran. He's not. In Minnesota and Wisconsin, the two biggest faith communities are Lutherans and Roman Catholics. He's neither. He's a Methodist. In one of his stories, he told about Groundhog Day, which is coming up on Tuesday, of course. He said Groundhog Day works in Pennsylvania. It isn't nearly as cold there as it is in Minnesota. 
groundhogs are within arm's length. It can reach your arm down in the hole, pull the old groundhog out and see if he sees his shadow or not. Said so it's too cold in Minnesota. The groundhogs are deeper than the length of a man's arm, so we just use Lutherans, he said. The only problem with using Lutherans, he said, is that they cast a shadow even when the sun's not out. But Garrison Keillor has a syndicated column that appears in the Tulsa world. And his last one, he said he was in San Francisco and he went to church on Sunday morning. A Methodist church, his kind. And as he sat there worshiping, there was a moment in the service where babies were brought in, brought in to be baptized. And he said all of us were asked if we would renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of our own sin. He said, do you go anywhere else in the world that they talk about the spiritual forces of wickedness and the evil powers of the world? But we Christians know they exist, he said. They do exist. This is a difficult battle between our tendency to be self-centered and self-serving and God's will that we be others-centered, that we be God-centered and then others-centered, that we're willing to put ourselves out for the well-being of another. Another. He said all of us affirmed that we did in fact reject the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of our own sin, and promise to keep these babies in a community of love and forgiveness. He said, I've been saying those words for over 60 years, and it still brings a tear to my eye. We reject the evil forces of this world. We repent of our own sin, and we promise to surround these babies with a community of love and forgiveness until they have a faith of their own in this same God. Number four. Yep, the evil spirits, the unclean ones, they know who he is. I know who you are. You've come to destroy us, have you? You're the Holy One of God. The one whom God has set apart, set apart, consecrated, this one is going to reveal to us Gentiles Israel's God. Reveal to us Gentiles Israel's God, the God they've known for 2,000 years before the coming of Jesus. We're finally going to get to know. We're going to see his face in Jesus Christ. We're going to hear his heartbeat in Jesus Christ. Is Fanny Crosby a name you know? When I was a boy growing up, I uh, heard that name a lot because a lot of the hymns we sang in the little country Methodist church where I grew up were Fanny J. Crosby hymns. Fanny Crosby was born in 1820. That's a long time ago, almost 200 years ago. Born in 1820, um, when she was six weeks old, she got very sick and her sight disappeared. She would be blind for the rest of her life. She lived 95 years from the time she was six weeks old. She was blind. Her parents eventually sent her to a school for the blind. Uh, she met a young man there who was blind also, of course. And when they both got old enough, they married each other. And both of them were musicians. He was a composer and played musical instruments, and she wrote poetry. 
Fanny had been taken to church since she was a baby. No sight, so sound became very important. She loved the hymns of the church. She wrote more than 8,000 in her life. But the one that I remember best of all, and the one that's been reprinted in more hymn books than all the others, she wrote when she was 48 years old. That would have been 1868, three years after the end of the war between the states. She had been invited to one of the major prisons in our country to read the text of some of her favorite hymns that she had written to these prisoners. So she was led in, blind, holding on to the arm of one of the warden's assistants. She heard the clanging of the doors behind her and finally was ushered into a room where prisoners had been gathered. And she began to read one text after the other after the other. And when finally it was over and she was led out of the room, she heard one of the prisoners say, Good Lord, good Lord, bless me. Do not pass me by. And that night she wrote, Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by.